Welcome to the Successful Farming Soil Health Podcast, where we tell the stories and share the lessons of leaders in the modern soil health movement. Thank you for joining us. The Manitoba, North Dakota Zero Tillage Farmers Association began gathering momentum in the mid-1970s. The group was unique in that farmers from two nations, the United States and Canada, came together and jointly worked for a common goal. The group has since disbanded, but Successful Farming's Executive Crops Editor, Gil Gullickson, attended a reunion of past members. He talked with three men who were a part of the organization and how it still resonates with them today. Joe, can you kind of tell me about a little bit about the history of the Mantac Zero Till Association? I mean, when it all started? Well, I personally was attending NDSU in 76, 77, 78. And my interest had been tweaked about no-till, about farming without tillage. It, you know, hardly had a name at that point. And uh, a few of the extension specialists pointed me, and they happened to know a few farmers in North Dakota that actually were practicing no-till. They were in the early, early stages of it on their farms. And one was uh, Luther Bernson from Adams, North Dakota, and he's here at this reunion. So uh, I visited Luther's farm and he commented to me last night. He said he can still remember it. When you came on my farm, you were so full of questions, you know, and, and I was. I couldn't, you know, I probably couldn't ask enough questions. He probably would have liked to slap me alongside the head, but he didn't. He was a nice, nice man and, and a great mentor. So he actually told me about this meeting that had been going on for the previous year or so in Brandon were just a small group. In fact, last night he told me, he said the first meeting of this group of farmers uh, that didn't have a name yet could have met in a phone booth, he said. So I took that as a small group, right? Just a handful from North Dakota and South Dakota. From that meeting then, they met the next year and there were more people. And they met the next year and there were a lot more people. So then by 1981, the organization actually formally was formed with a board of directors, advisors from both sides of the border, uh, an executive secretary, you know, to handle our business side of it, and then plans to have an annual meeting at a public location uh, where anybody could attend. And then we had to come up with the name, right? That's where we came up with Manitoba, North Dakota Zero Till Association. And there was discussion about, is it zero till? Is it no till? And that was, it was fun discussion. Nobody got bent out of shape about it. But we just thought, you know, zero till has a nice ring to it. And we came up with a logo and everything. And so, that, so we went forward with that. And then we decided to move the meeting from the Canadian side to the U.S. side. And we back and forth every other year like that and it worked well for 39 years and the organization just disbanded uh last winter just actually before our winter meeting and it was it was sad in a way but what it tells me is it's not because there's less no-till or zero-till acres there's more than ever and it's growing continually but that there's a lot of sources other sources of information It's not just a group of farmers getting together now. We have lots of sources, whether it's your implement dealer, whether it's your co-op, whether it's uh, your neighbor personally. The Extension Service has come online with their soil health initiative in the state here and done tremendous work. Dr. Abby Wick, that's her job here in the eastern part of the state. 
So uh, it's it's been really great. Great organization. It got the whole ball rolling, and uh, we're just getting together to visit as past members. In 1980s, you know a lot better than I that it was just a terrible time for farming. Economics, I mean, farm sales, whatever. How did this group help you cope with that? And it was. Uh, high interest rates, poor grain prices. The 80s were tough. And last evening, there were farmers that shared their stories about how difficult it was to get through that period. And uh, like usual, one of the first things a farmer has to do to stay profitable is to, we, we can't demand more money for our grain, right? We can't go to the bank and say, I want lower interest rates. They're too dang high. You know, the only thing we can do is cut costs. And no-till helped with that. It really did, especially in those drier years. It was a way you could cut costs and increase yield. Well, what a better combination than that, right? So yes, it was a cost-saving economic measure. That's what really helped it gain popularity early on. I know that it seems like any time in a rural area, whenever someone tries something different, they're labeled as loco or, ah, heck, that'll never work, or, ah, what the heck is he doing? Are you talking about me? <laughs> it could be. <laughs> but did that group kind of help you to just, I don't know, therapy, but, you know, just kind of having someone to bounce ideas off to think, no, I'm not the only crazy one. There are people just like me elsewhere. Right. It, yeah, when... when uh, I or any farmer that was either thinking about it or in those early years of experimenting, let's call it that, with no-till, because it's, it's a total change in management on your farm. There's no question about that. To leave your farm and then end up in a room full of people with your questions, with your answers, with your excitement, it was just alive. Those rooms came alive in those years, and they still do today. I'm fortunate I get to go around and speak at no-till meetings in the region and nationally, and that excitement is still there, and it's fun to see it. I imagine going to a new practice and a new management scheme like no-till, there are lots of things that work and some things that don't work. As you look back at your farming career, is there a mistake you made that he said, oh, shoot, I wish I wouldn't have done that, but I learned from it. The only reason that is tough to answer is because there's been so many. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and I'm not lying. You know, I, we, we try things and it always looks good on paper, you know, and sometimes practicality side of it. But unfortunately, there's no better teacher than to try something and then have it not work out quite as planned. You really learn more from that than if everything just sails across, just smooth as can be, right? So yeah, certainly, but none of those mistakes, you know, took me out of, of the farming career. They were just bumps in the road. And it isn't like farmers using tillage don't have mistakes, right? Because every year, right, you, you till at the wrong time on, on the wrong year and you dry your ground out and the crop doesn't come up, right? Well, you know, you can say the same thing on the no-till side. You leave too much residue for a given spring because it's cold and wet and all of a sudden now you've got issues, right? You've got planting issues, you've got planter performance issues, that kind of stuff. So 
problems uh, just come with agriculture, but so do the opportunities to change what you're doing and uh, try something different next year. Where do you, uh, you know, if, if there's a young farmer right now who's in the same shoes as you were back in 74, 75, 76, going to ask you thinking about coming back to the farm, what kind of advice do you give him or her? Well, first off, find something that you can throw your passion at because that's what brings out really a lot of creativity in people. Don't be scared to try something that long-term can make your soil more productive. Uh, long-term, it can make uh, make your system for less inputs. It doesn't happen overnight. You, you got to look at it from a long-term standpoint. So just, just try experimenting, but reach out to people that have been in the business for a while. Why not? The people that no-till for the primary purpose of soil health, soil conservation, they are willing to share anything that they've done, mistakes they've made, you know, things that work for them. They're very good about that. So that would be my advice. If you want to do something long-term for your soil, the healthier farm, uh, look at conservation agriculture, look at no-till farming, look at cover crops, uh, but get out there and talk to people who have been doing it. And use things like this. Use uh, information now. You don't have to go to a meeting, right? I'm, I'm not saying don't go, but because there's always things you pick up. Nowadays with YouTube videos and podcasts and social media, you can find all this stuff online. And, uh, and then if you need more information about it, usually there's even contacts that you can reach out to these people individually and find them. Gil chats with veteran no-tiller Luther Bernston, who farmed near Adams, North Dakota, right after this. Get the latest ag news, markets, weather, and more when you sign up for today's news from Successful Farming. Register at agriculture.com slash newsletter for today's news, the free Successful Farming e-newsletter. Once a day, you'll get an email packed with relevant news hitting the ag industry online and around the nation along with the three big things happening today. Visit agriculture.com slash newsletter to subscribe to today's news from Successful Farming. Now you can read Successful Farming Magazine on your tablet or smartphone. Each issue includes ideas you can take with you to the field, pasture, barn, or even the shop. With the Texture app, you can enjoy over 200 magazines anytime you want. The Texture app is only $9.95 per month, and you can start enjoying your digital editions of Successful Farming Magazine today. Successful Farming Magazine is for families who make farming and ranching their business. Visit Texture.com and subscribe today. Well, Luther, could you tell me uh, where you farmed during your farming career? We farmed in northeastern North Dakota about 40 miles from Canada and 40 miles from Minnesota. How did you uh, get involved in this association and start no-tilling and doing some things different? The first contact I had was Bob Nowoski, who was the director of the research station, NDSU research station in Langdon, contacted me and he told me about this concept and he was wondering if I'd be interested, and I was. So then we went up to... Uh, I think we went up and visited with Jim McCutcheon and got the idea, and I kind of got hooked on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. When was this time frame about what you your It would have been, occurred? you know, about the mid-70s. Okay. Yeah. What was the farming like in your area back then? Were everyone just tilling their ground? Well, oh, yeah, because everyone plowed, including me at that time, you know. 
and it was a lot of it when I was growing up. It was three, uh, three rotations. It was wheat and then barley and then summer fall. You know, okay. left a third of it beer. And uh, I used to tell the story a lot of times. <laughs> there was three good things to keep you in good standing in our community. One was to not beat your wife, fly the flag, and uh, go to church every Sunday and uh, keep your summer fall black. <laughs> How like like the first uh, year you tried no-till, were you just kind of wondering, what am I doing here? I mean, how is this thing going to turn out? Because no one's done it before around here. No, they hadn't. And, you know, looking back, instead of, you know, doing 100 acres or something like that, I committed the whole farm okay. to no-till the first year. Okay. Well, was that scary to do that? <laughs> it was. <laughs> <laughs> what year was this that you went whole hog on no-till? I think it was 76, I'm not sure. Okay, okay. And that was, as I remember, a really dry year across the Great Plains. Yeah. You know, people were wondering how come I wasn't plowing. <laughs> Could you see results right away? I mean, were you able to diverse your crop rotation, or what was the process on that? Well, I felt fairly good in that county uh, ASCS, Office of Agricultural Service, used to, you had to approve your yields, you know. Mm-hmm. And I had uh, one of the highest yields in western Walsh County. Uh-huh. So I felt comfortable with that. There was years, I remember that I had the hay buster drill was my first one. Mm-hmm. And uh, that wasn't a, a good drill for a wet year. Oh, okay. <laughs> and we had gumbo up there and I hit a gumbo spot and everything just plugged up. That stuff, it's just like paste when it's wet but when it dries it's just like cement you got that right that's some hard land to farm my uh dad never farmed it but i had an uncle just a couple miles away he had to farm gumbo and there was one farmer i don't know what he did he might have laid off on the tillage but he had the name of gumbo jones because he was (laughs) the only one who could figure out how to make a living off of it and of course i I think of jim mccutcheon who made this work in uh, was he was had the Fargo clay, mm-hmm. and he made it work, you know. And uh, the thing that I found out that the first year no-till is the toughest, and as you get into it, it works better every year. But the first year is by far the toughest. Oh, over the years, were you able to diversify your crop rotation? Well, we we had to diversify because when we got into continuous, or you know. Uh, full cropping all the acres. Then we uh, got into uh, canola and uh, edible beans and uh, sunflowers and things like that. And uh, I guess we grew sunflowers a little bit before we were no-till, but I grew canola and I was asked to go to uh, Eastern Europe to uh, Belarus to teach them how to grow canola. Oh, and it was, of course, it was called rapeseed over there. They contacted me, and I said, well, I said there'd be a, a lot better farmers, much more knowledgeable in growing it up in Canada than I would be. And they said, well, it has to be from the United States because it's sponsored by the State Department, and you're the only one we know of that's grown. <laughs> oh, wow. Did you ever try growing corn and soybeans out there? I tried soybeans in A1, and, of course, we didn't have the good season 
varieties in, so it didn't work off very good. How did you uh, come to get involved with the uh, Manitoba No-Till, Zero-Till Association? Well, I think that uh, it was Bob Nowoski and, and Marvin Dick from the United States, and then it was uh, McCutcheon, Jim McCutcheon, and uh, Alma Strobe from the university. Mm-hmm. I think probably uh, Gordon McPhee was in one of those early hovels. Mm-hmm. And so then we decided we should form an organization to share ideas. Okay. And the uh, first years, you know, we could have met in a telephone booth. And then it got to be, we had a thousand people at our workshops. When did you uh, retire from farming? I retired in 93. I uh, developed pretty severe uh, rheumatoid arthritis. Okay. And then uh, my nephew was there. And I farmed for a couple years. We'd go back and forth to Colorado. We retired to Colorado. And then uh, found out that the most dangerous things on the farm were young kids and old men. Oh. <laughs> yeah, that's a pretty volatile combination. <laughs> so my nephew and I weren't on the same track as far as farming practices go. Mm-hmm. And so there was kind of always this tension with Paul, and, and I just figured it was better I get out of there because it, it wasn't that enjoyable if he had a... He never really grasped the concept of zero till, which has been sad. But mm-hmm. was there any one takeaway or, or one big thing that stood out? Thing that you learned from involvement in this association? Well, I think that that stood out was is that especially that first core group and like the group that is here, they were thinkers outside of the box. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was so exciting to be with them because. They were so innovative, you know, so many of them, and they were an inspiration to be around them just because of their uh, openness to new ideas. And and then, of course, uh, I think without exception, almost that as we got into a no-till and a zero-till, that we realized that it was second to none for soil conservation. Mm -hmm. And that's what kept me there and, and we felt that it was going to build uh, you know organic matter and things like that we were positive that it was but we didn't have any research to back it up so when sure. we talked with if you uh, had to give advice to a young farmer out there who's looking at different farming systems and thinking about no-till any advice you would give him or her I guess my advice would be that look at the prairie the original prairie and it wasn't built with the plow it wasn't built with applied fertilizer it wasn't built with insecticides but it flourished and i feel that that's where the guys like joe and that are really doing a good job now of mimicking mother nature and building the soil was it near adams where you farmed in yes okay I know one thing Joel brought up, too. I said, how do you deal with, you know, the people around here who think you're, he said, who think I'm nuts? <laughs> Did you have any, any of that oh, when you tried like to? I said, told you that this one guy said, you're an awful interesting guy. Because <laughs> I was introducing these new crops and mm-hmm. new methods. And we certainly had our share of mistakes. And I'm sure if I was farming today, I still would have it. When I mentioned last night that Joe was the incarnation of Bob Nowoski and 
Jim McCutcheon that he is absolutely on the cutting edge as far as I'm concerned. I haven't met all, all the notorious, but mm -hmm. I don't think there's anyone that's ahead of him as far as innovation goes. And, mm -hmm. and you know, the cover crops that he showed there, I mean, it is just amazing. Up next, Gil talks with Carrie Swindler of Mott, North Dakota. Stay tuned. Want to see the latest in machinery, agronomy, and technology? Then tune in to the successful farming TV show every week on RFD-TV. Join me, Dave Moitz, and Lori Bedore, Jesse Scott, and Anna McConnell. This show delivers the latest trends, newest technology, and takes a look at machinery of yesterday and today. RFD-TV is on Dish Network, DirecTV, and most major cable providers. Find additional programming information at agriculture.com slash TV. Are you looking for new advanced technology for your farm operation? Need some advice on managing your farm or tips on finding the best machinery prices? You'll find all this and more in Successful Farming Magazine. Subscriptions are available online at agriculture.com. Visit agriculture.com and complete your subscription to Successful Farming Magazine today. So, Carrie, could you tell me about your operation and where you're from and who's all involved? Our farm is south of Mott, North Dakota. Uh, we farm from there down into uh, Adams County, south of us, about 12 or 15 miles, and we grow uh, Right now we're growing six crops, uh, winter wheat, spring wheat, canola peas, sunflower, and some corn. In the past we've done a few beans, soybeans, flax, crops like that. But right now those are our six crops, the first ones that I mentioned. And um, I farm with my son, Nathan. My daughters also live in the area, and they participate whenever they can, help out wherever they can. My oldest daughter actually came out and ran the combine during harvest this year. She has a doctorate actually from NDSU in music performance. Her name is Erin. And my youngest daughter, Holly, also lives in the area and she's married to Lewis, who is my agronomist, who works at our local co-op in town. It is a family affair. Our kids had all gone off and gone to college and they didn't really know if they wanted to come back to the farm. And my son, Nathan, decided he wanted to come back and farm, so he did. And the girls didn't know if they'd ever come back to North Dakota, but they did. So they're all back home, and, and we kind of like it. We have six grandsons, uh, one of which we lost a couple years ago, but uh, we have five now, and they keep our world tipped upside down and on the move. And So it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully down the road, some of them will be interested in farming as well. That's our hope, but that will ultimately be their decision. I've lived on the farm where I farm right now my entire life. That's where I grew up. I'm the third generation. Uh, my grandsons come along. It'll be the fifth, which is my dream, of course, to see some of them come in and stay home and participate in the farming operation. Right now, we don't have livestock, but maybe down the road, one of them has an interest in that. That would be great if they wanted to get back into the livestock business, but right now we're all it's all farming. It's been uh, no-till since uh, the early 80s. It started when uh, we got started coming to the workshops that the Mandak Zero-Till put on. I accompanied my uncle Ron Swindler at the time to many of those events up in Brandon, Manitoba, and usually they were in Minot, North Dakota. So this association really means a lot to me, the people in it, the 
get it done attitude, but also comparing ideas and willing to share things back and forth across an international border and not really worry about, you know, that, oh, they're figuring something out. Maybe they're ahead of us or whatever. It wasn't really that attitude. It was an attitude of let's work on this together. Uh, when it first started, there really was hardly any seating equipment available at all to no-till with at the time. So guys were adapting their drills or building a drill or they had a company come alongside say, well, maybe we could do this or that. But commercially, everything was for conventional tillage. So back in those days, there was no way to really do a, can we say, a really good job like you can now. Uh, there's a lot of good equipment on the market now that you can go and almost retrofit or have it set up for your farming operation the way you want it. There's many companies that have good equipment available, so that's really not the problem as I see it anymore. But uh, this association, I think, in the Northern Plains and the Prairie Provinces was instrumental in seeing some of the changeover and the advancements from conventional farming to the zero-till, no-till situation that many of us know today. And uh, I was visiting with one of the other fellows this morning, just kind of dreaming a little bit and wondering what would things look like right now if we had not done what we tried to accomplish and I think we did accomplish back in the 80s and trying to change the mindset of producers to think and, and actually accept the fact that there is a better way to do things. And I think a lot of it's mental that you got to get to that point where you got to say, okay, I think this will work on my operation. I think maybe we should try and figure out how to do it. And, and that's what the people in this association did. Thinking about it on the drive down here from Mott, to me it's also very humbling to try to wrap your brain around the idea that I was involved with that. God gave me an opportunity to be involved in it. And just the blessings that all came along with it, the contacts with people in Manitoba. We had guys come to our workshops from all over Canada, all the Prairie Provinces, Alberta, Saskatchewan. We actually helped establish a group in Saskatchewan, our Mandag Zero Till Association. We had a lot of guys come up from South Dakota. They formed their own association. We had guys coming from Montana, Wyoming, Colorado, Utah, it was national in some respects, and it was also international. And I think some of it actually carried probably as far as Australia. And one of our uh, former board members here was talking last night. He was in Denmark and working with a no-till association that's getting off the ground in Denmark and Sweden, those two countries cooperating. So this association, in my opinion, has had worldwide impact to the good of trying to preserve our soils and make things better. And we have a lot of people to feed. And if we would have continued on in the vein that we were in the 70s, I highly question that we would be able to do that. What prompted you to get into no-till in the first place in the early 80s? We were growing sunflowers, <clears throat> and we were using a chemical that we actually had to soil incorporate and incorporate using tillage and we would have to go over it three times I won't name the chemical but we'd have to go over it three times to actually make it work well so that involved seeing a layer of soil that was about two inches thick that was dried out and fluffy on top so you had to set your planter deep enough to get down to the moisture number one 
So you'd get it planted, and then you'd get one of these flash thunderstorms that would come through southwestern North Dakota, hard driving rain. The next day, the wind would come up 30 miles an hour, and you had dust blowing everywhere. So then everybody would be out with their rotary hose, roughening up the soil surface so it wouldn't blow. Plus, the soil erosion from the water was severe. And even though we're in a low rainfall area, it was becoming severe enough in some of our fields it was creating ditches in the field that we could hardly cross anymore with our tractors or combines. So we were harvesting sunflowers, I think it probably would have been around 1980. And uh, it was just a mess. We were in there trying to cut the sunflowers. We couldn't hardly cross with the combines. I finally crawled up on the combine with my dad and I said, Dad, what are we gonna do? If we keep farming like this, there's not gonna be anything left for me to farm, much less my kids if I have any that want to farm, because there's not going to be any soil left here. It's going to be gone. And at that same point in time, my uncle Ron was kind of playing around with no-till. He was meeting with some of the original founders of the Mandak Zero-Till Association. It was just starting to develop. And he came home and he started on a few acres no-tilling some spring wheat into some spring wheat stuff with a, uh, I believe it was a Melrose Bettinson drill at the time. So he put it out in the middle of the section where nobody else knew where it was, but we knew where it was so we could start watching this. And my dad was advanced enough to agree with me after I jumped up on the combine with him and explained this to him that we have a problem here and we got to figure something out and we got to do something. So. I tagged along with Ron uh, to some of the workshops like up in Brandon or Minot and started learning about this and my dad became interested in Ron started doing more and then I started a few acres. I had Ron come over and seed a few acres for me and my dad made the comment, he said, if we could find a drill that would work, he said, I would switch. I said, really? Yes. It would. He was nearing the end of his years of farming it would have been easier for him to say okay i'm just going to finish out doing things the way i am you figure it out but he was willing to go along with and try to make the transition and the change to switch over to no-till so what we actually ended up doing in 1982 is at that time we also had a large cattle operation at the same time and help was becoming a problem and time was becoming a problem and quite frankly, we were just too big. We just weren't doing a good job. Especially I felt, in my opinion, the cattle just weren't getting taken care of the way I would have liked to have seen it. So we decided, okay, what are we going to do? I said, well, maybe we should choose which way we're going to go. Are we going to go livestock or are we going to grow crops? So we decided at that time, as we sold out lock, stock, and barrel, all of our livestock, we sold all of our conventional farming equipment, at that time, the yielder drill came on the scene. Gene Brecker actually worked with the company at the time. And we purchased a yielder drill in conjunction with Ron when the first one we got was together to try it out. So we had the costs spread out all over a lot of acres and there was three of us putting money into it so it wasn't so much to bite off at one time. Well, we ran that drill. We did some conventional stuff that year to try kind of phase off. It was like a two or three year process of the switchover. We sold all of our conventional equipment at the same time we sold out of cattle and went to one drill and we seeded our entire farm with one drill. 
And we decided at that time to grow winter wheat, spring wheat, and sunflowers and spread it out the workload. We ran 24 hours a day. I would never, ever recommend anyone doing that, but we did it until such time the equipment advanced far enough Then we bought a Concord and also ran the Yoder drill so we had two machines to run at the same time and didn't have to run 24 hours a day. It's evolved over the years and right now we're still just running one machine. It's a bigger machine. So we try to keep it simple. I'm not an iron guy. I don't like to have a bunch of iron sitting around. Whatever we have, we have there, it's going to get used. And if we need something, like if we need a roller, we don't own a roller, we go rent one from our neighbors. We have a very nice roller to roll our peas, or if we have soybeans to roll that ground. Uh, we actually have used it to help take some uh, sod out of production that was in CRP, uh, rolling pre and post plant. So it's been exciting. It's been fun. I still enjoy what I do. Otherwise, I wouldn't be doing this anymore. I could retire any time, but... As long as I have my health, I think I'll continue doing what I'm doing. And my son definitely knows and sees the benefits of it. And he doesn't want to change. I asked uh, Joe this question, like whenever farmers adopt a new practice, there's always kind of the chatter in the coffee shop. Was, oh, oh, absolutely. Who? And yes. I, I asked him, oh, you yeah. mean guys like me <laughs> that I talk oh, to? Yeah. How, how did you deal with with that well you just have to turn the noise off and you have to do what you believe is right at the time for you and that's what we did and everybody thought we were nuts and maybe we were but as time went on uh, more and more people were watching and more and more people said you know if there was a drill I could use and then John Deere Trent came out with their drill and uh, most of our neighbors are no-tilling uh, and they do a very nice job. Some of them are probably doing a better job than we're doing. And so it's exciting for me to see that. Our wind erosion problems are just a fraction of what they were. I mean, it's hard that you just don't see it hardly anymore. And <laughs> the last few years, we haven't had enough heavy rains to have much water <laughs> erosion. So that's not been a problem either. But I'm still excited about what we did. I'm, st I'm still excited about what this association did and the people in it, and I can't say enough good things about all the guys. And, you know, did we always agree? No, we didn't. Or, nor should we have, because that's how things advanced. That's how ideas came out on the table. You know, I really don't like your idea, but how about this idea? And we'd sit around a table like this and banter those things back and forth. And we agreed to disagree a lot of times, but we got along just fine because we knew everybody's situation is different. Even from farm to farm next to each other, things are different. It just is for whatever yeah, reason. What strikes me about a group like this is, say, like conventional farm groups, if you have like a farm bureau or a farmer's union guy, you know, automatically, you know, there's those divisions that are right there that mm -hmm. they're kind of locked in. Whereas it seems like this group, it's a lot more free-flowing. You know, it is it kind of goes back and forth and okay, I don't like your idea, but here's one. Let's try this. And I think there was kind of an unwritten agreement that there was maybe just some areas that we just all kind of chose to leave alone. Maybe the political side of things or, you know, the differences between our countries in a lot of ways, you know, between Manitoba and North Dakota. I think there's more similarities than there was differences. And I think we all recognize that. But there was just probably some topics that we just all kind of chose. Well, maybe we just just leave that alone. And I think that was good. 
And, and it's probably still that way now, uh, even today. Thanks for listening to the Soil Health Podcast from Successful Farming. I'm Jody Henke.